York. This is Democracy Now. I think this is a victory for dialogue, a victory for peace, offering significant good news for today's turbulent world. Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to restore diplomatic ties after four days of secret meetings in Beijing. We'll look at what this means for the Middle East and China's growing role in the region. Then we go to North Pole, Alaska, as President Biden moves to approve a massive oil and gas development in northern Alaska known as the Willow Project. Then to East Palestine, Ohio as senators grill the CEO of Norfolk Southern over the company's toxic train derailment. You talked about covering the needs of the people of East Palestine. Does that include paying for their health care needs? All of their health care needs. Senator, we're going to do what's right for the citizens of East What's right is to cover their health care needs. Will you do that? Everything is on the table, sir. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In California, at least eight migrants died after two boats capsized off the coast of San Diego Saturday. A woman aboard one of the boats called 911 late that night asking for help. When authorities arrived, they found two boats, but no survivors. There are no further details about the victims. Boats attempting to cross from Mexico to the U.S. have become more frequent in recent years, as the Biden administration continues to enforce harsh immigration and border policies that have blocked most people from seeking asylum at the southern border and safely enter the United States. Meanwhile, in Europe, over 1,300 people aboard three overcrowded migrant boats were rescued off the southern Italian coast Saturday, as the death toll from a shipwreck off the shore of Calabria two weeks ago has risen to 76. Three more bodies were found Saturday, including two children. That same day, thousands protested near the site of the shipwreck, denouncing Italy's deadly anti-immigrant policies. Meanwhile, at least 30 migrants are missing in the central Mediterranean after their boat capsized Sunday as they fled Libya for Italy. Over a dozen others were rescued by Italian authorities. In Turkey, at least five migrants drowned off the country's southwestern coast Saturday as they traveled to Greece on a rubber boat. And in Spain, a group of 48 migrants were rescued Friday off the Canary Islands. Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to reestablish diplomatic relations in a deal brokered Friday by China and signed in Beijing. The agreement ends a seven-year dispute between the two countries who plan to reopen their embassies within two months. This is Ali Shamkhani, secretary of the Supreme National Security Council of Iran, who represented Tehran at the talks. At the end of the talks, we reached a conclusion to start a new chapter after seven years of breaking off relations between the Islamic Republic of Iran and Saudi Arabia. While considering the matters of the two countries and the security and futures of the region to prevent meddling from extra-regional and western states and consistent meddling of the Zionist regime in the region. The news comes at a time of heightened tensions between Washington and Tehran and Washington and Beijing. The White House cautiously welcomed the deal while denying it signaled China's increasing global influence. As National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said the U.S. would not be stepping back from its role in the Middle East. 
In the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers killed three Palestinian men in a shootout near Nabla Sunday morning. The violence came a day after an estimated half million people rallied in cities across Israel for a tenth consecutive week of protests against plans by Israel's far-right government to gut the judiciary. Meanwhile, hundreds of demonstrators led by several American Jewish organizations protested a visit by Israel's finance minister to Washington, D.C. Sunday after the Biden administration granted him a diplomatic visa to speak at an investment conference. Bezalel Smotrich was accused of backing a pogrom against Palestinians when he said earlier this month Israel should erase the Palestinian of town of Huara. His comments came just days after Jewish settlers attacked the town, burning cars and homes and killing a Palestinian man. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, at least 19 people were killed Sunday by suspected rebels from the Allied Democratic Forces in the eastern village of Kirandera in North Kivu province. This comes just days after a twin raid in the same region killed at least 36 people. This is a survivor of the attack. The situation here is catastrophic because of the attack and the damage. Many people died after their throats were cut, their houses were burnt down. And here in the hospital, here where we are standing, even the medicines and all the hospital material was burnt. The U.N. is warning of a mounting humanitarian disaster in the DRC as some 300,000 people fled violence in North Kivu province last month. This is UNHCR spokesperson. UNHCR teams reported the most horrifying testimonies of human rights violations in affected areas, especially in Rutshuru and Masisi territories, including arbitrary killings, kidnapping, extortion and rapes. Calls have been mounting for the Rwandan president, Paul Kagame, to stop supporting M23 rebels, whose attacks have led to the displacement of over half a million people, though Rwanda has denied any involvement. The Biden administration said Sunday it'll bar future oil and gas leasing for three million acres of federal waters in the Arctic Ocean and will limit drilling in a further 13 million acres in the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska's North Slope. The announcements came as the White House prepared to issue its final decision on the Willow Project, a proposed $8 billion ConocoPhillips oil and gas development in northern Alaska. On Friday, the White House denied reports the administration is prepared to greenlight the project, saying no final decision has been made. Indigenous and environmental groups have been fighting the project for years. Later in the broadcast, we'll speak with Sikinik Mapin of Sovereign Inupate for the Living Arctic. Saudi Aramco has reported profits of over $161 billion last year, the largest ever annual profit for any fossil fuel company. Agnes Calamard, the secretary general of Amnesty International, said the figure is shocking and called on Saudi Arabia, which owns almost all of Saudi Aramco, to phase out fossil fuels and use the exorbitant profits from its oil sales to support human and environmental rights. Other major oil companies also reported record revenues in 2022 as demand surged amidst the war in Ukraine. 
California residents are bracing for more extreme weather as another atmospheric river has put some 15 million people in California and Nevada under flood watches. In northern California's Monterey County, the Pajaro River breached a levee over the weekend, triggering an uncontrolled flow of water into the surrounding areas and forcing thousands of people to flee their homes. In Peru, at least six people were killed and hundreds of homes damaged or destroyed over the weekend as a powerful cyclone unleashed torrential rains. Elsewhere, Australia's Queensland state experienced record-breaking floods sparked by heavy rain, prompting evacuations. And on Sunday, Cyclone Freddy made landfall in Mozambique for the second time in a month, breaking an all-time record for the longest-lived tropical cyclone and the highest accumulated energy ever observed in a single storm. U.S. banking regulators have taken extraordinary measures to shore up the financial system after a run on Silicon Valley Bank in California last week caused its sudden collapse and sparked fears of financial contagion. The Biden administration says all of Silicon Valley Bank's depositors will have access to their funds today, including uninsured deposits and those exceeding the quarter-million-dollar cap set by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The FDIC, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department have taken similar steps to protect depositors at Signature Bank of New York, a major lender to cryptocurrency companies, after its rapid collapse Sunday. These are the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history. Cecilia Rouse, chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisers, sought to downplay fears of a wider collapse. Our banking system is in is in a fundamentally different place than it was, you know, a decade ago, and that the reforms that were put in a place back then uh, really provide the kind of resilience that we'd like to see. So we have every faith in our regulators. A bill signed by then-President Trump in 2018 rolled back key parts of the Dodd-Frank banking regulations passed after the 2008 financial crisis. Seventeen Democratic senators and 13 House Democrats sided with Republicans in support of the deregulation, which ended mandates that banks keep more cash and other liquid assets on hand to prevent bank runs. A 2018 law also rolled back stress tests that might have exposed weak weaknesses at SVB and Signature Bank. SVB's CEO Greg Becker lobbied Congress in 2015 for the rollback of Dodd-Frank. President Biden is addressing this issue in a speech today. In Georgia, an independent autopsy of an activist who was fatally shot by Atlanta police in January concludes their hands were raised when they were killed. Georgia State Patrol shot 26-year-old Manuel Esteban Theron, known as Tortuguita, as they raided the encampment of forest protectors who've been opposing the construction of Atlanta's $90 million police training center, dubbed Cop City. The autopsy, which will be released in full today also reveals Tortuguita was likely seated cross-legged when shot. Tortuguita's family Friday sued the city of Atlanta after the release of more video evidence of the shooting was blocked. The killing has drawn national attention to Cop City as protests spread across the country. 
Former Vice President Mike Pence delivered his sharpest criticism yet of former President Trump for his role in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Pence told attendees at the annual Gridiron Dinner, an elite D.C. event bringing establishment reporters and politicians together, quote, his reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day, and I know history will hold Donald Trump accountable, Pence said. His remarks came even as he's resisting a federal grand jury subpoena to testify about January 6th. And the 95th Academy Awards were handed out in Los Angeles last night. The Malaysian-born Michelle Yeoh made history as the first Asian woman to win Best Actress for her role in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which also won Best Picture. For all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight. <laughs> this is a beacon of hope and possibilities. Kiwi Kwan won Best Supporting Actor for the same film, marking the first time two Asian actors win Oscars in the same year. Ruth Carter became the first black woman to win two Oscars after she took home the costume design trophy for Black Panther Wakanda Forever last night, four years after winning for Black Panther. The winner of Best Documentary was Navalny, about the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, his poisoning, imprisonment and his anti-corruption movement. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at a new agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia to reestablish diplomatic relations after a seven-year rift. The deal was reached after four days of secret talks in Beijing in a sign of China's growing diplomatic power in the Middle East. As part of the deal, Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to reopen their embassies within two months. China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, called the agreement a victory for peace. I think this is a victory for dialogue, a victory for peace, offering significant good news for today's turbulent world. U.N. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres praised the deal, saying, quote, good neighborly relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia are essential for the stability of the Gulf region. The response in Washington was more muted. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said the Biden administration supports any effort to de-escalate tensions in the region, but he questioned if Iran is going to, quote, meet their obligations. Ali Shamkhani, the secretary of Iran's Supreme National Security Council, spoke Friday in Beijing. At the end of the talks, we reached a conclusion to start a new chapter after seven years of breaking off relations between the Islamic Republic of Iran and Saudi Arabia. While considering the matters of the two countries and the security and futures of the region to prevent meddling from extra-regional and western states and consistent meddling of the Zionist regime in the region. We hope that this new chapter will compensate for the stagnation of relations that took place these last seven years and also leads to stability and security in the region, as well as the development and welfare of all its peoples. We're joined right now by Trita Parsi, executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, author of several books, including Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Trita, welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, start off by your response to this thawing of relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia and where it took place, these secret talks in Beijing. 
really significant development in the region, not only because the Saudis and the Iranians have come to terms on a normalization, which hopefully will be used to reduce their tensions and as a result, uh, bring down tensions in other countries in which the Saudis and the Iranians are fighting each other, but also because of the fact that China stepped in and brought this deal over the uh, goal line. It had already been prepared for more than two years by the Iraqis and the Omanis, but they had not managed to get it over the uh, uh, um, goal line that Chinese did. This is major development because China has so far not shown any interest or ability to be able to play that type of a diplomatic role in the region. Now it has, it has been successful and it is sending shockwaves throughout the region and beyond. So talk about the role of China in negotiating this secret deal, or at least the secret talks, not secret deal anymore. Well, the Chinese were able to play this role for a couple of very simple reasons. First of all, they actually have excellent relations with both the Iranians and the Saudis. Unlike the United States, the Chinese have uh, retained a neutral position on their conflict. They worked very hard and with great discipline to not get themselves entangled into the conflicts that the various regional powers have with each other. And as a result, have been in this position to be able to play this role. It's also noteworthy that China had this diplomatic influence without having a single military base in the region, without being the main arms provider of any of these uh, countries, or without providing any security guarantees to any of these countries, uh, which is usually the American model for mediation, which we're seeing less and less of. Uh, if this then now means that the Chinese are going to play a greater role beyond this issue, then that would, without a doubt, be a very, very important development. And there's signs that that is the Chinese uh, ambition. It is not just a normalization deal. The Chinese want to hold a summit between Iran and the GCC countries, uh, the Arab states of the Persian Gulf, in Beijing later this year. This could be the first steps towards a, a fundamental different security architecture in the region. President Biden was asked about the deal on Friday as he was leaving a press briefing. What are your thoughts on Saudi Arabia and Iran reestablishing diplomatic relations, sir? Better the relations between Israel and the, the Arab neighbors, the better for everybody. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby also commented on the deal in an interview with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. Anything that can bring tensions down in the region is welcome, Chuck. And if this can help us end that war in Yemen, if it can help the Saudi people feel uh, more comfortable that they're not going to be attacked from Houthi rebels that are supported by Iran, uh, then, th then we welcome that. It remains to be seen how sustainable this is going to be. We've seen Iran enter into agree agreements before, make commitments that, uh, that they actually don't follow through on. We actually hope they do. We hope this does work to de-escalate tensions. Do you think you're going to close this deal between Israel uh, and Saudi Arabia? And do you think this deal with Iran makes it harder or easier for the Israelis to, to, to do that? We certainly want to see Israel more integrated into the Middle East. We support the Abraham Accords, Chuck, and we want to see that integration continue. Um, one of the reasons why the president went to the Middle East last summer was to help move that process along. You saw just recently Oman opened up their airspace uh, to flights to and from Israel. That's an outgrowth of that trip that the president made. Uh, of course, we got the Red Sea Islands deal done. So we've made a lot of progress on that. We want to see that integration uh, deepen and broaden. Yeah. Now, whether 
or not this Iran-Saudi Arabia deal, how that affects that, I think, remains to be seen. Uh, but it doesn't change our focus on trying to see Israel more integrated into the region. Your response, Trita Parsi, to all that, both what John Kirby said and President Biden. I'm not sure if the president heard a question right, because answering about the U.S.'s effort on the Abram Accords uh, and, and Israel's integration in response to that question, obviously, seems to suggest a, a dismissive notion. But as we saw John say uh, uh, on TV later on, the U.S. welcomes this development because it ultimately can bring down uh, tensions in the region. And I think that is truly uh, an important point, because even though there's a lot of nervousness right now in Washington about China stepping in so the diplomatic vacuum that the United States itself has left by uh, disabling itself from being able to play the role of a mediator in many of these different conflicts. The reality, nevertheless, is that if we have a more stable Middle East, even if it's uh, mediated by the Chinese, that ultimately is good for the United States as well. The U.S.'s focus has almost singularly been on the Abram Accord. And the Abram Accord does bring about better relations between some of the GCC states uh, and Saudi Arabia and, and Israel, but does absolutely nothing to bring about a resolution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which is the actual real problem that is needs to be resolved. It signals that the United States has essentially moved beyond even having the ambition to be able to help. And that would be one thing. But reality is that the Abrams report actually is helping cement that conflict and making sure that it cannot make any progress because all of the pressures taken off of Israel to end its occupation of the Palestinian territories uh, by moving forward on normalization with other countries. So the incentives for the Israelis to move in the direction in which actually would resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict uh, is removed by the Abrams report. And for what? For, you know, uh, direct flights between various countries, etc. It seems to me a very odd trade-off. And it's, again, part of the reason where why I think more and more countries are no longer looking towards Washington to help resolve some of these disputes. But potentially now we're going to see a trend in which the eyes were going to be turned towards Beijing. Can you talk about the Iran GCC summit that's going to be held in China, um, uh, scheduled for China later this year? Um, the significance of the meeting being held there, what are the key issues expected? And also, China's role as, well, major trader uh, with both countries—that's uh, at T-R-A-D-E-R—but um, um, the biggest consumer of Gulf oil, the largest purchaser of Iran's oil. Well, again, we have to be very clear. This is what the Chinese are proposing. We don't know yet if the Iranians and the GCC states all have accepted. I suspect they will. Uh, we don't know how ambitious the agenda is going to be. Um, so it, there's a lot of unknowns. But the mere fact that it's been suggested, the mere fact that there's a high likelihood that these countries will accept is in and of itself very significant. The Persian Gulf is one of the few areas in the world that does not have any security architecture at all. Uh, and to have China step in uh, and move towards building something along those lines is going to be a very significant development, particularly if it does not bring about arms sales, does not bring about security guarantees, but is actually helping the region build its own security architecture and be its own guarantors of that. That would be a very different approach from what we've seen so far. It would fill a vacuum. Uh, uh, that can bring about far greater stability in the region. And from the Chinese perspective, 
the key reason why this is important to them is because they are in dire need of the energy in the Persian Gulf, and they need stability in the Persian Gulf. It is also important for them, it appears, that as U.S.-China tensions are increasing, and the United States is increasingly moving towards trying to contain China, by China playing this type of a diplomatic role elsewhere in the world and showing itself to be constructive, perhaps indispensable, that will make it all the more difficult for the United States to contain China. We're talking to Trita Parsi, executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Talk about how this decision um, and the deal has been received in South Asia, in the Middle East. Well, throughout the Middle East, it's been welcomed from countries such as Lebanon to Yemen to uh, Iraq, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, of course, the UAE, Qatar, uh, Bahrain. The only country that really has stood out in opposition to this has been Israel in the region. Um, and we've seen statements by Yair Lapid, for instance, the opposition leader who blames this on Netanyahu, causes a very dangerous development, uh, and others. And I think this is because of their fear that this normalization between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and it will now mean that the Saudis will be far less interested or, or drive a harder bargain for it to normalize relations with uh, Israel and join the Abram support. The, the, the issue, though, is that this doesn't need to be an either or. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia can have normal relations with Iran and later on also move towards normalizing relations with, uh, uh, with Israel. What is the main obstacle there, I think, ultimately, is that unless the Israelis move towards uh, a, a real peace and a two-state solution, it will always be a difficult position and decision for the Saudis to move towards normalization. Polls have shown that even though the Saudi population are open to having trade with Israel, they're not open to normalization unless there is uh, a two-state solution and a Palestinian state. And, and this is not a, ma a minor issue for the Saudi population. This is not a public transportation issue. This is an issue that carries a tremendous amount of emotional potential. So even though I think the Saudi crown prince is eager to normalize and has been indicating that, this is an issue that he has to be very careful about because having the Saudi population completely be against it will be a problem for him if he goes forward without any movement on the Israeli side towards peace. And what does this mean for Yemen, Trita? Well, that's where I think the hopes are, are high, that as a result of Saudi Arabia and Iran normalizing, uh, agreeing to not interfere in each other's internal affairs, which from the Saudi perspective means that the Iranians stop supporting the Houthis, um, uh, and that it will bring pressure onto the Houthis, that there will be a higher likelihood now that the truce that is in place has expired, but is still uh, abided by largely by both sides, will now be able to be extended and potentially move towards a more permanent settlement between the two sides. Whether the Iranians have that influence over the Houthis or not remains to be seen. I think it's largely been exaggerated. So now the Iranians need to deliver on that front. But People I've spoken to are very hopeful about this because uh, even though the conflict in Yemen has its internal roots, it has been fueled significantly by the competition and rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And finally, what do you think this means, China negotiating this deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Could China play a similar role between Russia and Ukraine? Well, it's very interesting that you mentioned that because the Chinese, of course, first— uh, a couple of weeks ago, 
launched this idea of them mediating between Russia and Ukraine, and it was not received particularly well in the West. Uh, even before it came out, uh, uh, the proposal was essentially poo-pooed. Um, and, and then when it came out, it didn't appear to contain that much. Uh, reality is that I think down the road, the Chinese very well could play that role because they do have leverage over Russia, which is something the United States does not in the same way. Again, we're talking about a conflict in which the U.S. is clearly on one side. The Chinese, from the U.S. perspective, are on the Russian side because they have not taken the Ukrainian side. But I don't think that's necessarily how uh, the Russians do it. Uh, more than anything else, I think what's important here to realize, we are now in a multipolar world. And in that multipolar world, powers such as China, down the road, India, are going to play a more important role, perhaps a leading role, when it comes to diplomacy and conflict resolution. Our approach from the American side, I think, should be to uh, flexibly adjust to this and welcome the positives that come with that, rather than seeing that as a negative and dangerous development, uh, that it would be a threat to us. I think the threat would come if we continue to uh, uh, pursue approach, particularly in the Middle East, in which we're constantly taking sides and as a result become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. If the new normal is that other countries look towards China for peacemaking and America for war making, that would be a threat. But it doesn't have to be that way. It's in our hands to be able to change things. Trita Parsi, we want to thank you for being with us, executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and author of a number of books, including Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Next up, we go to North Pole, Alaska, as President Biden moves to approve a massive oil and gas development known as the Willow Project in northern Alaska. Stay with us. Yuli Amma, Yuli Amma. Stars help to make us strong, to mix our lives and to make them one. Remember how beats loud, dance to make your people proud. Yuri Amma, Yuri Amma, Yuri Amma, our Sangam A chance to come and share with you has raised our hopes of a love times too. As we go off in our separate ways, he's gonna wing this better day. Yuri Amma, Yuri Amma, Yuri Amma. The power's in you to make a sound. Create a beat that's from your heart. My People by Bamua. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. <clears throat> Multiple news organizations are reporting the Biden administration's preparing to formally approve a massive oil and gas development in northern Alaska known as the Willow Project. Approval of the $8 billion ConocoPhillips developments expected to be announced today, greenlighting the drilling of some 600 million barrels of crude oil. Climate activists and many indigenous groups had urged Biden to reject the project, warning it'll create a carbon bomb. In advance of approving the Willow Project, the Biden administration 
administration also announced on Sunday steps to reduce oil drilling in other parts of the Arctic. This includes barring future oil and gas leasing for 3 million acres of federal waters in the Arctic Ocean and limiting drilling in a further 13 million acres in the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska's North Slope. Kristen Monsell of the Center for Biological Diversity criticized the Biden plan, saying, quote, protecting one area of the Arctic so you can destroy another doesn't make sense, and it won't help the people and wildlife who will be upended by the Willow Project, they said. We go now to North Pole, Alaska, where we're joined by Sikinik Malpan, executive director of the Sovereign Inupiat for a Living Arctic. It's great to have you back. Thanks so much for joining us, Sikinik. Can you talk about what you understand is being announced today? Well, uh, recently on Friday um, afternoon, the Bloomberg report came out saying that there were speculations that the Biden administration will approve a three-pad um, plan instead of the five-pad original plan. Um, and now we're <clears throat> hearing that he will make his decision Monday um, at about 9 a.m., but we're not for sure. Um, while campaigning in 2020, then-presidential candidate Joe Biden said, quote, no more drilling on federal lands, period. This is candidate Biden responding to a question about his position on drilling in the Arctic. Yes, he made a I lot think of I'm the only one, maybe not the only one, only one running who's been up in the Arctic Circle. I've been, remember the great oil spill that occurred? And I watched when I went up there and I went up in a helicopter up on the North Slope and saw what was going on and saw what was happening as the glaciers began to melt and how the caribou and everybody, I mean, there's a lot going on up there. And it's a real gigantic problem. And by the way, no more drilling on federal lands, period, 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 period. <laughs> But well, the Arctic Circle is a disaster to do that. So that was candidate Biden. And again, the little part we missed at the beginning of what the candidate said was, I'm completely, totally opposed to drilling in the Arctic. Uh, Sikinik Malpin, describe this project. Um, what is the Willow Project and what you understand President Biden's announcing today? Well, this is the um, biggest oil and gas leasing project that's on public lands right now. It is a massive um, project that would be happening in the North Slope. Closest community would be Nilkset. And this would completely <clears throat> encircle the community in oil and gas, which already has Prudhoe Bay, Alpine. Um, and this is just the start of the project because this could um, green light for further exploration, further development, um, and this project would emit so much carbon, it would actually double the amount that Biden had promised that he would reduce. Um, and so all of his plans to reduce the CO2 being released uh, would be nullified by this project and then putting back um, double what he said he was going to reduce. And can you talk about why you've invested so much time and energy into protesting this and the two parts of the plan that's being announced today? Yes, we um, I want to say personally, I've been trying to fight this project for about four years. And on a um, more personal level, my mother lives in Nokset. My family is from Nokset. And although I wasn't raised there, I have a deep connection and love for the community and in 2018, I was invited to go to um, an air quality monitoring system uh, 
planning session. And currently, ConocoPhillips owns the only air quality monitoring system um, in place in Milkset. And they also own most of the research that is quoted for the safety of this project to go forward. So um, we went over the top 10 pollutants that are put out by ConocoPhillips um, that's required to be put to the EPA and what the possible um, impact is from being exposed to those pollutants like cancer, respiratory illness, um, <clears throat> and, and other things, even changing the sex in the womb of a child from uh, male to female. And in that um, session, there was community members, the youth council, and a lot of us realized that we had seen these occurrences in our family. We had seen increase in cancer, respiratory illnesses. And in 2012, there was a blowout, a Repsol blowout, and that caused one child to be medevaced from the village, another one to um, have permanent um, health problems with their respiratory um, system. And many people have complained recently there was a gas leak um, near Nuxet in the Alpine field, and they didn't evacuate the village. They said that they were fine, but many people self-evacuated because children were complaining of nausea, headaches, um, and not feeling well. And so um, currently there is no plan put into place to help evacuate or keep the community of Nuxet safe. And um, as I learned more about this project and its impacts, not just to the community and the public health, um, but the climate impacts were significant. The Arctic is warming at four times the rate um, than the rest of the world. And while many people speculate climate change, we're living it. We're seeing in the Yukon River, they haven't been able to fish for many years, um, subsistence fishing. We are seeing caribou that are showing signs of starvation. We're seeing fish pop up with mold. Um, and <clears throat> this project is going to accelerate those issues and create food insecurity and many, many issues that is not just going to affect Milkset or the eight um, communities in the North Slope, but the entire Arctic itself. And then, of course, globally, it's going to affect people for uh, climate change. And so this project, um, we're concerned about for those reasons. Um, but we also want to transition away from oil and gas. And this is lock us into oil and gas for the next 30 years. And so and we wouldn't actually see any of the benefits economically for 10 years. Um, so this would be something that, you know, a catastrophe for Biden, who had promised that he would transition us into clean energy. And what is also concerning is that systematically we've seen that small rural um, places like this, time and time again, coal, gold mining, um, have had been in an economic hostage situation where they're um, told that the only way that they can get basic necessities like running water and plumbing and such um, is to sacrifice their health their lands, their food security, and um, so many more consequences from this project. Uh, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore, longtime environmentalist, told The Guardian, the proposed expansion of oil and gas drilling in Alaska is recklessly irresponsible. The pollution it would generate will not only put Alaska Native and other local communities at risk, it's incompatible with the ambition we need to achieve a net zero future. We don't need to prop up the fossil fuel industry with new multi-year projects that are a recipe for climate chaos. Instead, we must end the expansion of oil, gas and coal and embrace the abundant climate solutions at our fingertips, he said. Now, according to the 
New York Times, Willow would be the largest new oil development in the United States, expected to pump out 600 million barrels of crude over 30 years. Burning all that oil could release nearly 280 million metric tons of carbon emissions into the atmosphere. On an annual basis, that would translate into 9.2 million metric tons of carbon pollution, equal to adding nearly 2 million cars to the roads each year. The United States, the second biggest polluter on the planet after China, emits about 5.6 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide annually, The New York Times wrote. Um, so, yes, environmental activists uh, across the political spectrum are calling this a carbon bomb. Sikhanik, talk about ConocoPhillips and who pushed this project forward. ConocoPhillips um, has a huge hand in everything that happens in Alaska, um, politically, locally, in the public education. And recently, Rosemary Atungarov, the mayor of Nilsted, put out a letter um, with other council members and the president of Native Village of Nilsted as well, stating um, that this project would be detrimental to the people there, um, but um, it would also be a huge climate mistake. And um, as we've we've seen, we can't have a project go forward like this and meet the global uh, goals to reduce carbon emissions. And um, so we're looking at this project and President Biden, and we understand the political um, ties that he has with Murkowski, who is someone that crosses party lines that has um, that is a Republican that really wants this project to go forward. And so we believe that he's not making logical choices or choices that are best for his constituents and people, but he's making a choice based off of pressure from political leaders, our congressmen, that are not representing Alaska well, because um, as you stated, there has been so many things happening in the Arctic that have been reckless, and this project would only further exasperate those issues, like the 12 villages that need to be relocated immediately um, in Alaska due to climate change, erosion, and there's no federal funding for this. So for President Biden to greenlight this project, he would really be going back on so many of his campaign promises, but also putting our world at risk of having um, <clears throat> less of a chance to mitigate the challenges we're facing because of climate change. Well, Sikhanik Mapang, I want to thank you for being with us, Executive Director of the Sovereign Inupiat for a Living Arctic, speaking to us from North Pole, Alaska. Next up, Senators grill the CEO of Norfolk Southern over the company's toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Stay with us. When you see something that you love a lot, crash and burn into sand. You won't pick it up, you won't take it home. But you can't fall your hands. Can you see? Can you believe it's coming after me?
Sadness in the Air by Faye Webster. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Five weeks after the Norfolk Southern train disaster in the small town of East Palestine, Ohio, the company's CEO, Alan Shaw, was grilled on Capitol Hill Thursday about the February 3rd derailment and so-called controlled burn that blanketed the town with a toxic brew of at least six hazardous chemicals and gases, including vinyl chloride, which, when heated, becomes phosgene, the World War I chemical weapon. Shaw testified before the Senate's Environment and Public Works Committee, just days after the third derailment of a Norfolk Southern train in the U.S. since that derailment in East Palestine. This is part of the exchange with Democratic Senator Ed Markey. Am I correct, Mr. Shaw, that last year Norfolk Southern made $3.3 billion in profits? Yes, sir. And last year, we invested over a billion dollars in safety. And last year, our accident rate, our, our number of accidents was the lowest it had been in the last 10 years. Our safety stats, Senator, continue to improve. And I am committed to making Norfolk Southern safety culture the best in the industry. Well, you're not having a good month. You're not having a good month. And it seems like every week there's another accident that Norfolk Southern uh, is a part of. During his testimony, uh, Shaw also faced questions from Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders about covering the health costs of those impacted by the toxic derailment. You talked about covering the needs of the people of East Palestine. Does that include paying for their health care needs? All of their health care needs. Senator, we're going to do what's right for the citizens of What's right is to cover their health care needs. Will you do that? Everything is on the table, sir. The Ohio Department of Health reports East Palestine residents continue to experience headaches as well as coughing, fatigue, irritation, burning of the skin after the train derailment. Many remain unsatisfied with the Environmental Protection Agency response, and much of the testing that was carried out by contractors for Norfolk Southern featured in a video the company posted online. Sarah Burnett is a toxicologist with CTEH, an environmental consulting firm. She's one of dozens of scientists in East Palestine helping answer those questions about air quality. So what do you say to them? What is that answer? I say to them that we have detected uh, no vinyl chloride or other constituents related uh, to this incident in the air, and that all of our air monitoring and sampling data collectively do not indicate any short or long-term risks to them, their children, or their families. But a recent ProPublica expose published with The Guardian cited independent experts who said the tests were inadequate for detecting the full range of dangerous chemicals possibly unleashed in the derailment, failed sample the air long enough and did not prove residents' homes were truly safe. For more, we're joined by two guests in Louisville, Kentucky, a state that neighbors Ohio. Monica Unseld is with us, a biologist, environmental and social justice advocate who studied the health impact of endocrine-disrupting chemicals used in plastics like those released 
East and East Palestine. She is the founder and executive director of Until Justice Data Partners and co-lead for the Coming Clean Science team of environmental health and justice advocates focused on the chemical and energy industries. And in Albany, the capital of New York, Judith Ank joins us, former EPA regional administrator and president of Beyond Plastics, whose recent New York Times op-ed is headlined, Why Has the EPA Allowed the Horrific Situation in Ohio to Continue? She also wrote a Boston Globe op-ed headlined, The East Palestine Disaster Was a Direct Result of the Country's Reliance on Fossil Fuels and Plastic. Welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, Judith Ank, let's begin with you. Talk about what you think has to be done right now with East Palestine, and then what you think caused it. I mean, you were the EPA regional director in this area. What should the government be doing, and what did Norfolk Southern do wrong? Well, the governor, the government needs to do so much more, starting with why are we producing so much vinyl chloride that is used for one purpose, and that is to manufacture plastic, PVC plastic. And so part of that is risks associated where the manufacturing takes place, mostly in black and brown communities in Louisiana and Texas. You put this vinyl chloride on the train tracks, uh, we know that there are unfortunately many derailments a year. And so this accident happened. I question whether it was smart uh, to drain this known carcinogen into local ditches and set it on fire without um, evacuating enough people. The evacuation zone was only one mile by two miles without putting testing in place. And then just a few days later, lifting the evacuation order, telling people that it was safe for them to return with very limited testing. Dioxin testing didn't happen until a month later after pressure from the public and media cycles calling out the EPA. And then unfortunately, the EPA asked the polluter here, the rail company, to do the testing. And the dioxin testing, I think, is far too limited. We need surface testing inside people's homes. Most people spend most of their time indoors, and volatile organic compounds, other contaminants will settle on people's kitchen counters, rugs where kids crawl, furniture. None of those surface areas have ever been tested. Uh, the reason I think we're seeing this problem is because the EPA is deferring much too much to the state of Ohio. And starting today, I think they need to turn the page, assert more leadership, and put public health protection front and center. I mean, it is unbelievable that it wasn't the government that did the so-called controlled burn, right? It wasn't involved with it. It was the company, and the company paid the testers as they assured everyone that the whole area is safe. Well, it's not unusual for the EPA uh, to have contractors do some of this testing and monitoring at federal Superfund sites, for instance. But this is a unique situation where people need to have trust in government. EPA should have been doing this themselves. But wasn't and Norfolk Southern those... paying for the testers? Yes, it was their contractors, and sometimes EPA went with them to observe. I think that was a mistake. EPA has scientists. EPA has toxicologists. They should be in the driver's seat here, not Norfolk Southern. 
And this issue, let me bring in Monica Unseld, of vinyl chloride and the chemicals that were released in this. We have to be very clear. There were three people, one a trainee, on this train, just three Norfolk Southern employees. And the train was more than two miles long. And that's not one of the longest trains of Norfolk Southern. What chemicals were released? Um, <clears throat> good morning. I'm not sure we know. We know of dioxin. We know of vinyl chloride. We know of a few others. My concern is, do we know of the mixtures? What is happening when these chemicals react with other chemicals, especially when you're doing a controlled burn or those chemicals are encountering other chemicals within the soil, the air, and the water? And I think this leads to a bigger issue of why the EPA and the federal government are not screening these chemicals before they go to market, and why the EPA and the federal government for decades have allowed industry to say, trust us, trust the science, when they really mean their science, or they say that they're going to do the right thing. I think we have decades of research to know and evidence to know that they're not going to do the right thing. And under laws like the Toxic Substances Control Act, the EPA does have more authority, but they're not taking it. So we can't test for these chemicals. With proprietary information laws, we may never know everything that's carrying, the trains are carrying across the continent. So my concern is we may not know what really happened here for years. And what does vinyl chloride do and what happens when it burns— um, it, it's used mainly in uh, plastics, particularly PVC and plastics that are used in building materials. Um, when it burns, it can create a, a nox, not noxious, toxic gases that can be very dangerous for people. I know we're looking at the acute effects of coughing and burning, but I don't think we know the long-term effects because those will be at doses so low that we don't know the health effects. The dose response curves don't look like normal toxological dose-response curves. And so we may not know the health impacts of burning vinyl chloride. Mm -hmm. And the dioxins, what explain what endocrine disruptors are? Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that at low doses, which are typically lower than what our thresholds at the regulatory agencies are, at low doses, they're either mimicking or acting as a obstacle or blocking our natural hormone systems. So they can act as an estrogen. Most of them are um, estrogenic. Some are obesogens, where they make it very difficult to lose weight. They've been linked to cancer, behavioral issues in children, learning differences, diabetes, rises in infertility rates. They really are a public health crisis that we've sort of Jurassic Parked our way into, because, for one, we're not screening the chemicals, but we're also creating new chemicals that the planet has never seen before. And we don't have the testing that's sensitive enough to determine whether or not they're in the water, the air, or the soil, and what they're doing in our bodies, particularly when they're mixing together. And when—how long do they last? Some of them are persistent, so they won't dissolve in water. So some can go for months, but some can stay for years, particularly if they're in fatty tissues. And we know with our uh, indigenous tribes in the Arctic, through their diets, their cultural traditions, they are getting a lot of these pollutants like dioxin, which you can mainly get exposed to through food, in the fatty tissues of their traditional foods. Um. 
I want to go back to the former EPA regional administrator, now president of Beyond Plastics, um, Judith Enk. Uh, talk about what plastics have to do with all of this and what has to happen at this point. and the accident that took place in Ohio, because five of the train cars that's causing the most damage contained vinyl chloride, a human carcinogen that was declared a human carcinogen back in 1974. And we have to ask ourselves, is plastic really worth the risk? Businesses tell me all the time that it's cheap, but it's not cheap. Because what about the human suffering and the economic damage of just what, you know, we're in the very early stages of dealing with this toxic train derailment in Ohio. What about the human health impact and economic cost of people living in communities where plastic is manufactured? Most plastic doesn't get recycled. Uh, it's mostly a 5 to 6 percent recycling rate. A lot of it winds up in the ocean. Scientists tell us that within the next decade, for every three pounds of fish in the ocean, there will be one pound of plastic. So I argue that plastic is not cheap at all. And yet, because of the uh, fossil fuel industry, because of the chemical industry, not because of what we want as consumers, Plastic is forecast to double in the next 20 years. That would be an enormous problem from a climate change perspective, environmental justice perspective, and our own health. Now, there are some states and local governments that are taking action to reduce the demand. In New York State, for instance, there's an important bill being debated in Albany called the Packaging Reduction and Recycling Act, which would cut packaging in half over 10 years and would also ban really toxic chemicals like vinyl chloride. The science on plastic is really solid. We know that people have no choice when they enter most American supermarkets. They want alternatives to plastics. What's missing is the political will to break free from the grip of the chemical industry, the plastic industry, and the fossil fuel industry that are all united in pushing more plastic onto the marketplace. Unless these change, I'm afraid we're going to see more East Palestines in our future, more climate change, more adverse health impacts. And this is all because the Congress state lawmakers in some states and the Biden administration just refuse to stand up to the plastics industry. You are calling for—started um, a public petition, your organization, Beyond Plastics, for the EPA to ban the use of vinyl chloride. So what is the replacement for that? And talk more about the effects of vinyl chloride. Well, vinyl chloride has immense uh, health impacts, even when it's not in train cars and being purposely set on fire. Uh, it is a human carcinogen. It is used for drinking water pipes, for instance, where you can use copper. It's used for packaging, where you can use refillable, reusable packaging, or packaging made from recycled material, like metal, glass, cardboard, paper. It's used for toys. 
the iconic little yellow rubber ducky that floats around in children's bathtubs, that's made from polyvinyl chloride. Let's just ditch that ducky and have toys that do not pose a risk to kids, especially when they're chewing on the plastic. There's an abundance of alternatives to, to polyvinyl chloride plastic and many plastics. It's just, um, ju- it's just a matter of political will, as I said, just as we have fuel efficiency standards for cars and appliances, it's time to have environmental standards for packaging, which is a giant part of the plastic picture. Judith Ank, we want to thank you so much for being with us, former EPA regional administrator and president of Beyond Plastics, and Monica Unseld, biologist and executive director of Until Justice Data Partners. That does it for our show. To see all our coverage of East Palestine, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now! Watch all our shows online at democracynow.org.